Thank you, Wesley. Um, I just want to say, first of all, thank you guys for coming out. Um, it's, it's really special. Um, and I want to say thank you to, to Wesley and Davis County Public Library, of course, River Park Center for welcoming us here. I just have to say, I, I do a, a fair amount of speaking, and it's really special that, that you guys came out tonight, because this is the first time I've actually been invited to speak back in Kentucky, and it's, it's just really meaningful to me, so thank you guys. And because of that, I, I wore, <laughs> anybody here UK fans? Yeah, we have a, a pretty big alumni group out in Los Angeles. We all get together and watch the games and cheer the cats on, so, so cool. But, uh, usually I approach talks very structured, but um, after everything that's been going on and how meaningful it is to me to actually be here in Kentucky and to get the opportunity to share with you guys, um, I decided to not go in any kind of scripted way and I wanted to just speak from the heart and just share with you guys the story of who I am and some of the things that I've been through. So I guess we'll get started. Um, so I grew up in Lexington, born and raised, and I grew up to a great family. I've got a, a younger brother, younger sister. Um, my dad He's a, a businessman, entrepreneur, and growing up, I, I wanted to be just like him. So at the age of 12, I started my first company. It was a lawn care company. And I was the kid like, pushing around the lawnmower around the neighborhoods. And I, I took care of the properties that their property management company either owned or, or managed. And I felt really... I felt really good about that because I felt like um, I, was, I was aspiring to be like my dad. He was, he was my idol, the person I looked up to the most. And I continued doing that all the way until 16 years old. And by 16, um, I hired some of my friends and they, they helped out and we were growing in the business. And I was, I was reading and studying business and self-help and entrepreneur books from an early age, um, trying to just be like my dad. And there was this one book that, that made a really big impact on me. It was called Creating Wealth by Robert G. Allen, no relation. But, uh, <laughs> and in this, this book, it, it outlined a, a plan that it didn't matter how much money you had to start with, but you could, you could retire in 10 years by investing in single fam family rental homes and investing in real estate. So with my family being in real estate, um, I, I pitched my dad this idea that was in the book. And the idea was you, you buy one house and you use it as collateral to buy another house. And you buy two houses a year for 10 years. You bring in renters to pay off the mortgage and at the end of 10 years, you sell off the first 10, you pay off the second 10, and then you own 10 properties free and clear. You have a net worth of about 1.5 million, and you're making a yearly income of over $100,000. So at 16, 
I thought, I'm going to be retired by 26. Life, life didn't really work out that way, as you could expect. So um, my dad and I started uh, doing that. He agreed to co-sign on, on our first property. And at the age of 16, um, we bought our first investment property. And I was so proud because I was in business with my dad. He agreed to split the business 50-50. And by the time I graduated college, he, he agreed that he would sign over his ownership to me. And that was kind of like my gift to move forward in life. So after two years, we, we owned five properties. And everything was, was going great. But as you can imagine, life doesn't always happen as we expect. So the day after I turned 18, um, one of my best friends died in a car wreck. And I didn't really know how to deal with the loss and the pain and the grief that I was going through. And I was raised Catholic. And I had a very clear understanding, at least at the time, of, of right and wrong and good and evil. And when he, when he died, all that kind of went out the window. And I, I just couldn't understand why, why bad things could happen to good people. And I found myself getting really angry. And I found myself angry at God and not really having an outlet or a healthy outlet to, to deal with these, these emotions. And then shortly after that, I, I found out that my parents were getting divorced. Um, turns out that my dad had agreed to, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. But, um, my dad was having an affair, and the divorce was very, very ugly. Um, I found myself defending my mom and, and trying to take her side when they would fight. So I found myself really, really lost and feeling a huge sense of betrayal and trying to, to kind of get a foothold. And at the time, this, this anger that was building um, I turned to, to partying, to drinking, to drugs, and I fought. I fought a lot. Um, it, was, it was like I wanted, I wanted other people to feel my pain and feel what I was going through. Um, <clears throat> so I transitioned from high school to college. I was actually living in one of the rental properties that my dad and I owned at the time. And of course, I had friends live in the house with us and they were helping pay off the mortgage. And at the time, there were a couple friends who approached me about this, this idea, this, this plan they had. Um, another friend, he, he was actually on scholarship at Transylvania University as an artist. And he, he was given a, a private tour of what's called a special collections room. And there they had, they had all these rare books and paintings, uh, some of which included John James Audubon's Birds of America, which are 
valued at millions of dollars. And they're not really books, they're more books of paintings. Uh, they're about three feet by two feet, these huge elephant folios, and each book has just pages of these beautiful, elaborate paintings. So they approached me and they said, hey, would you be interested in being a part of this, this heist? And I said, no, you're, you're crazy. No, I, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and they said, well, we actually, one of the guys said he already went to Amsterdam. He flew over to Amsterdam and he met with a black market buyer who had agreed to pay $12 million for this one collection of books, these four books. And of course, you know, I, I kind of jumped at the number. I said, $12 million, wow, that's, that's a lot of money. But um, I felt I had way too much to lose. And I kind of laughed it off, like, you guys are stupid. You know, you're just going to get yourselves caught. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. So months went on, and my, my own personal problems and the fighting with, within my family continued. And <clears throat> it got to a point that I finally confronted my dad because he, was, he wasn't paying things with my mom and mortgage was going late and I was coming out of pocket to try to help. But, um, you know, even a successful kid doesn't really have grown people money for very long. So um, it got to a point that I confronted my dad and I said, you know what, I just don't think this, this business, this partnership is, is working anymore. So I would like to sell the properties, let's dissolve our partnership, and let's each take the money and go our separate ways. And what I found out was he had already done that. He had already refinanced the properties he had already put the properties on the market, and I wasn't getting any of the money, and never would. Um, and I was devastated. I was devastated by this. Um, I had built my entire life up to that point, you know, even though it was only a life of a, a child. I had built my life on this dream. And I'd given up scholarships, and I chose to stay in town to pursue this this dream that I was building with my dad, you know, despite the all the, the rough times we were going through, and to learn that, that that was the truth of it, that I had based my future on this this lie, I felt I felt lost and I felt hopeless and beyond betrayed. And I got to a point that I just wanted to tear it all down. Everything everything. So I went back to my, my friends who were still planning the heist and excuse my French, but I walked in and I said, fuck it. Fuck it. I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, let's do it. Because I got to a point that I didn't really care what happened. I didn't care if we got away with it. I didn't care if we got caught. I just wanted things in my life to change. And that was selfish and that was wrong, but that's where I was at at that point in my life. So things definitely changed. 
So we, from that point forward, it was about a month and a half, maybe two months um, from the time I said, okay, um, I agreed to drive the getaway car. So we planned and, you know, you see things in the movies and you see these, these slick criminals, you know, rappelling down from the roof and swinging through the windows and it just doesn't happen that way. Um, when it really gets down to it, crime is, crime is gritty, crime is ugly and, you know, oftentimes people get hurt. And when we actually committed this crime, it's, it's the type of thing that you run in, you get what you want, and you try to get out of there as fast as you can. So for my part, I drove the car, and I remember driving, making that drive to, to the university library, and it was such, it was such an out-of-body experience because I was so conflicted within myself. You know, as we were driving down the street, approaching, getting closer, getting closer, getting closer, I was like, am I really doing this? Am I really doing this? Okay, okay, okay. It almost felt like I was underwater. It felt like I was separate from myself somehow. And sure enough, we, we got there. I didn't stop myself. And we pulled up and there was a parking space open right next to the, the emergency exit. So I parked the van and there was one guy who was, who was the, the student at Transy. He was positioned across the parking lot and he was the lookout. Two of the guys who had decided to go in to the special collections room, um, they went in one at a time and it was supposed to be the type of thing because there was, there was a librarian on duty and it was supposed to be the type of thing that when they, they walked in, they, they would have to get access from the librarian to get in because other than that, there was no security system. So the idea was to gain access into the, the special collections room and then kind of talk her through what was happening, but what ended up happening was not that. So from my perspective, sitting in the van, they were supposed to go in and it was only supposed to take about five minutes. I sat there waiting and waiting, checking my rear view mirror, checking my mirror, looking across, wondering like, what, what the hell happened? Is this, did something go wrong? Uh, should I just drive away? And just in general, should I just drive away? Because at this point, I haven't done anything. Like I could just, I could just put the, the van in reverse and just drive off and just move on with my life. Like this whole thing never happened. But for some reason, I didn't. I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't leave them, so I stayed. I stayed and I waited and about 25 minutes, maybe 30 minutes later, finally they came busting out the back door and they were running and they didn't have the big books 
the entire reason for the whole crime. They didn't have them. They had these backpacks on their, their backs and they were running and there was this, this other librarian chasing after them. And I put the van in reverse, peeled back, and one of the guys ran towards the van, but the woman was so close on his heels that I had to peel forward. And he ran up, tried to catch the van. And the other guy, I don't know what he was going through. He was probably so out of his mind from what he had just done. He didn't even run towards the van. He ran off like into the middle of nowhere, like in the heart of campus, just going crazy. But the first guy jumped in the van and we pulled away and I'm driving as fast as I can and we're trying to get the other guy's attention. We're yelling at him, get in the van, get in the van, get in the van. And then finally he snaps to and he realizes, oh shit, I'm supposed to, supposed to be here, okay. Then he dives in and I peel out and into oncoming traffic. And from there we're swerving through traffic um, the one guy that ran off into the middle of nowhere, he, he was so, so caught up from what he had just done and what he had just experienced that he actually, he vomited. And he, he rolled the window down and he threw up and we're yelling at each other and we're arguing about what had just happened. And we got to a point that I kicked him out of the car and I told them to hide because I knew the police would be looking for a gray van with three men with all this, these stolen goods. So they hid in this, this residential area. I went and switched the van, brought my car back, picked them up, and then from there, we rode home safely knowing that we're okay, at least for now. We watched the news that night, and they didn't really have any, any particular evidence against us. And I remember leaving my friends at the house, and I just went, I went home. And I remember just sitting with my mom and my brother and sister. And I don't think I was present at all, but it just felt good to just be with them. Shortly after that, I think it was the next day, um, the guy that had kind of planned most of, most of the actual heist, he contacted the black market buyer and said the buyer backed out. All of a sudden we have this stuff, which, which by the way, even though we didn't get the, the John James Audubon's Birds of America, um, we actually got away with Charles Darwin's On the, on the Origin of Species, um, an illuminated manuscript from the 1400s that had belonged to King, to King passed down for generation to generation, um, medical dictionaries that belonged to Thomas Jefferson, and sketches done by, by Audubon. So we had all of this stuff and all of a sudden the entire plan fell apart. So now there was big arguments of what do we do now? 
And one of the guys, the same guy that had contacted the, the buyer, it was his brilliant idea to go to Christie's Auction House in New York because there they have what's called private sector sales. And you sign non-disclosure agreements and they're not supposed to, to share that information with anyone. But what I was trying to tell them at the time was that all that goes out the window when you do something illegal. And my family at the time actually owned an auction company. And I was in, in real estate and appraisals. And I tried to tell them that is the stupidest thing you could ever do. And we almost got in fistfights over it. But ultimately, the three of them who had been working on this for a very long time, they decided this is what they're going to do. So at that point, I kind of decided, you know what? I shouldn't have even done this thing to begin with. I'm just going to create some space. I don't want anything to do with you guys. But at that point, the truth of it is I had already done it. I was already intimately involved, and there was no going back. So I went to New York with them. And they met with Christie's Auction House. The meeting went great. Christie's was, was very impressed with the books, these, these amazing, very rare books. And from being involved in appraisals, I knew that the first thing that they would do is they would, they would trace back where these books were last sold and for how much. So Christie started their process and after the meeting, the guys came back to the hotel room and they, they let me and the other guy know that it's great news, Christie's gonna find us a buyer, don't worry about it, they're gonna contact us. And I said, what do you mean contact us? Contact us where? You know, the hotel phone? No, they're gonna call this guy's cell phone. The cell phone registered to his name. So we got in a huge fight, a huge blowout fight, and I, I actually called his phone and put it on speaker, and you know, his phone message was something stupid like, hey, this is Spence, leave it. So from that point forward, I knew that was, that was the beginning of the end. And I was so mad at them, and I just blew up, and I lashed out. And I actually had a gun with me at the time. I, I kind of grew up learning to travel with a gun. You know, anytime you travel, keep a gun with you just in case something happens. So I took the gun, and the movie depicts it a little bit different, but I took the gun, and I was basically trying to tell them, I don't care what you have to do. You have to, you have to go back into Christie's, even if you have to take this gun, you have to go back in there and get that number because that, that's it. That's the end of our life. And sure enough, they didn't. And as mad as I was at them, I realize now I was, I was more mad at myself for allowing myself to do and be a part of such a thing. So from that point, that was basically the beginning of the end. And 
we were looking over our shoulders the entire time after that. And it was only a matter of time until the FBI got involved, and they did. And it was about a month later that the FBI contacted Christie's. Hey, have you happened to see these books? Yes, we have. Here's the contact number for the people that, that brought them to us. So two and a half months later, the, the FBI, they, they were following us. They were tapping our phones. Pretty much knew that it was, it was any day now. And we, we had had talks of leaving and, and, and going somewhere else and finding another buyer. And, and I'm really thankful that at this point that we didn't. But um, I had a girlfriend at the time. She was my high school sweetheart. We'd been together about six years at that point. And we had been through a lot together. And especially through the divorce and all the things that were going on with my family, she was kind of the, the one person that, that was always there. And you know we always kind of got through things together. But um, we, we'd had a really good night. And we, we kind of stayed up late. It was maybe 2 or 3 in the morning. We went to sleep. And around 5 o'clock in the morning, she, she woke me up, shaking me. And we heard this loud noise. And she was like, Chaz, Chaz, there's someone in the house. And I jumped up and I'm trying to wipe the sleep from my eyes. And I heard all this commotion. And... I jumped up and I grabbed a, a knife from my nightstand, and it was this old World War II like uh, trench knife, and it was huge brass knuckles and six-inch blade. And I'm listening in the dark, and it's just stomping and shouting, and doors busting open and screaming. And there had been break-ins in the area around the University of Kentucky campus. And there was one specific one at the time where there was a breaking and entering and several people had, had tied up a man and his wife and they raped his wife in front of him and then robbed the house. So when I'm hearing all this commotion, this is what's in my mind. And I drop the knife, I run over to my closet I turn on the light and I grab a gun. And <clears throat> that's when I turned and saw my girlfriend. She was sitting upright in the bed and tears were just streaming down her face. And she was scared to death. And she saw the gun in my hand. She was like, what are you gonna do? And I honestly said, I don't know. I don't know. But get in the closet and answer the phone. <laughs> No, it's okay. So I yelled for her to get in the closet. And she jumped up and she stood in the closet and she's just saying, Chaz, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I didn't know, but I told her, no matter what happens, no matter what you hear, don't come out. Just stay in here. So I said, I love you. And we kissed and we said goodbye. And I closed the door. 
and I ran over to the top of the stairs. My my bedroom, it was a it was like the top floor of the house, and there was a straight set of stairs that led into the living room below. And there was a small landing where there's a door at the bottom of the stairs. And at the bottom of the stairs, I just heard someone banging. And it was the butt of a shotgun. Boom, boom, boom trying to break through the door. And I heard a voice yelling, open the door, open the door. I wasn't going to open the door. So I held the gun, a three-point stance, and I grew up hunting, and I could shoot. I'm a pretty good shot. So I knew I, I only had two bullets. It was a little two-shot Derringer. It wasn't much. And I heard a lot of commotion downstairs. I know there's a lot of people. So if I pull this trigger, it has to be, it has to be for real. So finally, the butt of the shotgun busted through the door, and I see a gloved hand reach, reach through the opening and open the lock. They kick open the door, and I see this huge, huge bear of a man standing at the bottom of the stairs. And he looks up at me, and we make eye contact, and I start to pull the trigger but I couldn't do it. I yelled what I had seen in TV and the movies. I yelled, freeze! <laughs> and he didn't freeze. He turned his shotgun square towards my chest, and that's when I read on his helmet, FBI. Across his vest, it read SWAT. And I froze. And, you know, they say that time slows down in traumatic moments. Well, for me, it stopped. I couldn't think, I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything. I was frozen. And I kept holding the gun. And he yelled to his team, he yelled, he's got a gun. And somehow, by the grace of God, he didn't shoot me. He could have easily shot me. I had a gun pointed at his face, but he didn't shoot. Him and his team ran up the stairs. They knocked the gun from my hand. They threw me on the ground, handcuffed me. And shortly after that, the, the FBI agent that was leading the, the operation, he came up and he told me that they don't have a warrant for my arrest, but he was bringing me and everyone else in for questioning. And, you know, being a kid, I was like, okay, sure. So he let me at least put some clothes on, because up at that point I only had boxers on. And they uncuffed me. I put some clothes on. They recuffed me, and I was walking down the stairs. And that's when my girlfriend stepped out of the closet. And I can still see her face to this day. She was just devastated, just broken, because she realized the truth, that I was a criminal. So after that, I went to county jail. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me, have you, have you learned your lesson? Um, you know, was, was prison reformative? All those kinds of things. But the truth of it, as soon as those those doors locked 
to that solitary cell in, in county jail, I learned my lesson. And I got what I wanted. My life crashed down around me. My reputation, all of my expectations, the life that I hoped to live, it all came crashing down in this, this solitary cell. But in that cell, that's where I was forced to take a hard look at, at the choices I had made and the consequences of my actions. And <laughs> I remember finding, finding my peace with God and with myself. You know, all that anger that I had felt, it kind of all washed away. And, and I chose to move forward with my life in a different direction from that point. So it was 11 months after that that we were sentenced. And ultimately, myself and my, my three friends at the time, we were sentenced to 87 months. And at the time I was 19, just turned 20 during the actual sentencing. So when the judge said 87 months, I did the math really quick. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's seven years and three months. Seven years. That's, that's a third of my life up to this point. And <clears throat> I was devastated. My family was devastated. Um, but what was really interesting is once all that happened and once I went to prison and faced the consequences of my actions um, and fully accepted responsibility for everything that I had done, my family and I were able to, to heal and work through a lot of the things that, that we just hadn't dealt with up to that point. And prison is, it's what you see in TV and the movies. It's, it's a very violent, very brutal, very extreme environment. But um, it doesn't happen quite like you see. So one of the first days that, that I actually went into prison, um, they put me in a place called a bus stop. Right, so a bus stop is basically if you were to block this room off right here at this wall and turn it into this little square, pack 16 bunks, bottom and top bunk and lockers and 32 lives, pack them in that room and that's where you live. So as you can imagine, it's a very tense, stressful environment. So. I walk in two weeks after my 21st birthday, and I'm a skinny white kid, and I felt like I could handle myself in a fight, but I was a kid walking into a grown man's world, a prison-hardened grown man's world. So I didn't know what was gonna happen. Am I gonna have to fight? You know, how, how am I gonna survive in this, this environment? So I just kind of watched and I remember sitting on, on my bunk, I was the top bunk, 
back right corner of the room. And I just sat on the bunk and I just watched and I observed and I tried to learn, you know, how does this all work? What can I expect? Is there going to be a point where I'm going to have to fight? Am I going to have to prove myself? And I think it was the third day as I was watching, these guys started to gather around my bunk. They pulled up a chair and just sat and sat and sat. And they were waiting for something. I didn't know if what they were waiting for. I didn't know if I should just take this chance, just run. Um, should I try to fight? I don't think I would stand much of a chance against that many. But they just kept waiting. And they were being quiet, just sitting. And finally, this, this other guy came up. He had his long dreadlocks. And he was just ripped. And he had this shirt. It was, it was in tatters. You could tell he'd been locked up for years. And as he, he was walking forward, he was holding something behind his hip. And I thought, oh, shit. Oh, shit, this is it. And as he approached, I could tell everyone was waiting for this guy. So when he gets closer, he pulls this thing out from behind his hip. And it was a Bible. These guys would meet once a week in this same location to do a Bible study. And come to find out, one of the guys, it actually wasn't the, the one guy that seemed most intimidating at the time, but one of the other guys, he was actually the regional head of the Bloods gang. And I learned that a lot of the people in there, most of the people in there, are really good people when it comes down to it. And they're trying to do their best with what they've got. There were plenty of brutal and horrific things that I saw. Um, but there were also good times, too. And I spent most of my time trying to find a way to make my time productive, you know, to be, to be positive in a negative environment. And I was really selective about who I would spend my time with and how I would spend my time. I was selective about the, the books I would read and the things that I would study because I knew it had an impact and it would shape who, who I was and who I would become. So that's when I started writing my first book, and my first book, it's called Mr. Pink, The Inside Story of the Transylvania Book Heist. And I felt, I felt really driven to, to share my story because when, when all of this first happened, it became public on a national, global scale instantly. And I felt so, so misunderstood. And I felt like, yes, I had done this terrible thing. But even though I had done this, it doesn't define me as who I am. So I turned down interviews for years because I didn't trust that I would be fairly represented. And that was one of the driving forces to, to write my book and to share. And also wrote in the hopes that someone else who was going through that pain that I was struggling with 
as a kid, that maybe they would read it and they would, they would see that there's another way through it. You don't have to self-destruct. You don't have to tear everything down. You can find appreciation for things as they are and find a healthy way to deal with what you're going through. So in writing Mr. Pink, I, I still had a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment for, for what I had done. So I poured my heart into the book and I expressed to the best of my ability everything that I had been through. And there, was still, there were still layers that I wasn't, I wasn't ready to reveal and fully expose because I was scared. I was scared to reveal the truth of who I am. And now, years removed, 14 years removed from the heist, about 10 years removed from the, the writing of this book, I understand the importance to embrace your story, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, and to fully accept who you are. Because whoever you are, whatever you've been through, whatever you've done, as long as you face it, as long as you admit it, it's okay to be who you are. Since then, I've gone on to write my new book, Evolution, Becoming a Criminal, with the intention to do just that, to share the truth of who I am and the full breadth of my experience and I don't know, are you guys familiar with American Animals, the film that's out now? So I've been approached by a lot, a lot of film directors and producers and people that were interested in, in sharing the story. I mean, close to 100 meetings, I don't know. Um, and there were a lot of people who really wanted to, to take what we had done and exploit it and just use it as a way to make money. But I found this, this one director and his team, uh, his name's Bart Layton. He actually reached out to, to me and the other guys while we were in prison. And I've gotten to know him over the years. And he's a really great guy. He's a documentary filmmaker. And it took me years years, about five years of getting to know him and his intentions with the film until I could trust that he would share an authentic representation of, of what we went through. So eventually I signed on to be a part of it and despite what people may think, I in no way financially benefit from the success of the film. That's, that's the filmmaker's prerogative and I am so grateful and so so thankful that the film that they have made it's a really real story and because unlike the the films that I grew up watching you know Ocean's Eleven and The Italian Job and Fast and Furious with all these like glamorized and flashy criminals this film doesn't do that. This film doesn't glamorize or glorify what we did because it shouldn't. 
this film shows how gruesome and ugly crime actually is and that people actually get hurt. And if there's any humanity in the people involved in a crime, they're sorry for what they've done. And this film expertly shows that and it juxtaposes this, this outrageous thing that we did with the truth and humanity of what we experienced in facing the consequences. And for that, I'm really thankful. And now, I've, I've been living in Los Angeles for about six years now, and I've been moving forward with my life. I've been rebuilding my life. And now my life is very, the focus is very different than when I grew up, you know, when, when the goals and the aspirations were, were money and financial. Um, I found the more healing that, that I went through myself, the more connected I realized that we all are. And the more I could heal my own pain, the more I could see it in others. And now I share my story in the hopes to touch something that, that might resonate with someone else in what they're going through. And I, I specifically enjoy working. I work with the, uh, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in this, this program called VITA program, um, Vital Intervention and Directional Alternatives. And we work with kids from ages 11 to 17. And every eight weeks, they bring on a new group of kids. And I get to, to share a day with them and uh, lead them through a workout, a little guided meditation. And then we'll do, um, I'll share my story. And the amazing thing that happens is when I share my story, they feel like it's okay for them to share their story. And then we workshop some of the things that they're going through. And that's one of the things that I've learned on a one-to-one -one level and also on a macro level, that when we share the truth of who we are, it allows other people to understand that it's okay for them to share who they are. And in that, we forge better connections in our lives. And it's through relationship that we heal. And when we heal, that's when we all live our best life. Thank you, guys. So are there any questions? Uh, we're also going to do a, a Q&A. Any questions about anything, literally? I, uh, this, this whole experience with this, this film, it's, it's been really surreal. Um, I did a thing the other day on Reddit, and I, I answered questions for about an hour and a half, and it just, just, it just lit up, and there's, I don't even know how many views now, but within the hour and a half, there were over 300,000 views, and there were thousands of questions and comments, but um, 
when someone is, is able to, to hide behind an anonymous screen name, it's awful some of the things that people will say. Awful, awful. But, um, you know, I, I'm thankful that I have absolutely nothing to hide in my life, and I, I live very openly, and anything that, that I can share with you guys, I, I am more than happy to share. I so appreciate you guys coming out and allowing me the opportunity to, to share with you. And I hope that after hearing me share, you guys are emboldened to share the story of who you are with the people in your lives as well. Um, each book's different. Each book, um, I approach it based on the needs of what I'm trying to express. So my first book, you know, I was really, Mr. Pink, I was really trying to, I was trying to find my voice. And I would study, I would study all my favorite authors and, you know, how did they, how did they achieve this turn of phrase and how did they, how did they do this? So I wrote draft after draft after draft, um, just sharing what I had been through. And, you know, I would kind of refine it and refine it. And that's, that was kind of the process of this book. Um, I've since, I, I co-authored a book with a, a motivational speaker and priest. Uh, that book's called Among Friends, Stories from the Journey. And that was a collection of short stories. So with that, I, I approached it, like I, I studied how he would, how he, he would approach his talks. Um, I worked with him and workshopped a lot of, a lot of things that he communicates and how we could, how we, we could bring that together and what would be the best way to, to communicate that and still kind of capture the essence of, of who he is and the experience of what it's like to actually um, be at one of his talks. So try to keep it, keep it intimate and inviting in that way. Um, my, my most recent book, Evolution, Becoming a Criminal, um, that comes out 19th. So what is that, next week? So uh, that one I approached very different. Um, I approached from as wide as I could possibly expand my vision, um, I approached from what I would call an archetypal or universal um, ideal. So Evolution Becoming a Criminal is actually the, the first book in a three book uh, series. So the, the first book, uh, it covers the story of the heist. Um, the second book, uh, I call that Revolution, Becoming a Convict, and that covers my time in prison. You know, so I ended up spending, of the seven years and three months, federal prison, you're required to do 87%, even with good time. So I did five years and 10 months in prison behind the wall. Um, I did six months halfway house home confinement. And then I did 18 months probation, which 
I was supposed to do three years probation, but um, the judge actually let me off at half time. So I approached um, this book series by looking at it like the different stages of, of human development and human maturation. So from my understanding and my perspective, the first stage that we go through is kind of that childhood stage where our ego is trying to figure out what's, what's its place in the world. And that's usually ego versus self and ego versus familial issues. And that kind of sets the foundation for how we relate to the bigger world. So book two goes on to that next stage when we're no longer in our childhood world, but the adult world. And in that world, we, we grapple with issues of ego versus societal, cultural, religious forces, things on that level. And how do we fit into this greater whole? So in prison, I was thrown headfirst into that. And how do I relate to all these issues of, of society's laws, um, crime and punishment, um, racism? You know, because racism is rampant in prison. And it can be really tough. So I attempted to transcend that and find ways to, to bridge, bridge the divides between people. And in doing so, that kind of led me to, to where I'm at now and what the third book uh, addresses. And that is ego versus universal or archetypal issues. And those issues are, are things like love versus hate. You know, where do you fit in on that spectrum? Um, let's see, love versus hate, um, connection versus disconnection. Um, and just in general, life versus death. You know, where do you fit and how do you, how do you view those kinds of things? So I approached, I approached the books that way. Anybody else? Don't be shy. It's okay. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the interesting things that I actually really appreciated about this project. Um, I was invited to, to go on set and we actually filmed, so I'm, I'm actually in the film. Uh, the other guys are actually in the film. We were interviewed. But um, you actually see, see that, and that's the juxtaposition in the film. But what, um, what I think was really meaningful throughout the process is the director preferred that the real guys involved in the crime to not actually get to know the, the actors. Because in his, in his desire to tell an authentic story, he thought it would shift how the, the actors would actually portray us. And because if they came to know who we were, years removed from these, these kids that committed this crime, that it would affect the actors' decisions. 
And in doing so, it's, it's really incredible and it really speaks to, to their skill as actors because some of the, the pivotal moments in my life, uh, it's Blake Jenner actually plays my character and he absolutely nails it. And as I'm watching the film, I'm, I'm feeling and remembering and flashing back to the same things that I experienced. So it was, it was really cool in that way. Okay. Yeah. I I agree. Yeah. They do. There's, there's huge disparity in our, our justice system, especially federally. Um, policies were changed. I think the big shift happened in the 80s and there is no, there is no safety valve, there is nothing to, to mitigate when, when someone is 18 or 19 years old, there's, there's no differentiation between someone who's you know, 35 and making the same choices. Um, it's across the board. So they follow the sentencing guidelines and the sentencing guidelines, that's it, it's law. But uh, one of the things that, that the judge did, did speak on, um, because you know, Lexington, you know, similar to Owensboro, there's a lot of people know a lot of people and it's a very connected community. So when we were going through this, um, you know, in my family, we were pretty well known in Lexington. We knew a lot of people that happened to know the judge. And after I was, um, after I was arrested, I was so embarrassed. I went literally door to door to, to all the people who had influenced me in my life up to that point. And I just said, I'm sorry. You know, I don't, I don't have any, any excuse for what I did. I'm sorry for what I did. And You've made a big impact on me up to this point in my life. And despite that, I still did what I did. And I hope you'll, you'll continue to be a part of my life in the future. And in doing so, um, there was an amazing outpouring of, of love. And there were a lot of letters sent to the judge, you know, asking, hey, you know, give, give this guy, give these guys, give them a break. You know, can you... And you just kind of reduce the severity just a little bit. And the judge actually spoke to that in our sentencing hearing because we all pled guilty. We all accepted, um, it's called, it's a downward departure for acceptance of responsibility. That's about the only downward thing that we had to reduce our sentence. But um, the judge spoke to that. And she said, you know, I've had a lot of, a lot of letters written on your behalf from from people in the community, you know, some of which are my, my close friends. And I just have to say that, that you guys have been given the keys to success uh, and you still chose to do what you did. Whereas someone from a different background who, who commits a crime out of necessity, she, she said that she would show 
more favor towards them. And she felt the need to, to make an example out of us. So she did. Um, I think ultimately, um, because I was open to, to allowing the time to be positive and not letting bitterness or anger or any of that stuff in, um, overall it was positive. I feel I learned my lesson immediately, but after about three years after that, it, it shifted from just like serving my time for the crime into just punishment. And the, the last little bit, it just stretched on and on and on and on. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I think there's a lot of, lot of opportunity for change in our, our justice system. Yes and no. Um, that's interesting to bring up forgiveness because um, I've sought forgiveness and I still seek forgiveness. Um, the hardest forgiveness that I've had to, to ask for is forgiveness for myself. You know... Yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, I I've made it a point to to stand tall and to move past everything that I did. Um, sorry, now my my phone's ringing. Um, and I, I feel like because of that. Um, I've been able to move forward with my life and um, I've surrounded myself with, with really um, supportive people and the idea of forgiveness, I, I feel I, I have received forgiveness so much so that I've just kind of moved on with my life. But then when my life is put in the, the public spectacle again, you know, in, in the world of Reddit and people like that, you know, people, most people won't take the chance to, to get to know me or see me for a person. They see me as this thing that I did and try to define me because of it. And after experiencing prison, you know, even at the length that I did, I really got to know a lot of people. And there's a lot of people who really struggle with that and who never find forgiveness, they might find forgiveness in community, but they still aren't able to forgive themselves because they're caught in all that shame. And I feel it's, it's really important uh, also for people like that for me to share my story so that they feel it's okay to be who they are. You know, it's okay to move forward with their lives. Because at this point, we currently have in our prison system, 65% of people, when they leave prison, within five years go right back. And America, we have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. And I feel like that 
that shame and that guilt that we continue to, to bash people with to try to prevent people from moving forward with their lives and actually being productive members of society, um, that is a big cause of that recidivism rate. So I feel it's really important um, for people to know it's, it's okay. You know, you've done your time, you've served your time, hopefully you've learned your lesson. And if you have, move forward. Anybody else have questions? Yeah, yeah. So they're they're very young. So the the sheriff's department they keep tabs on all of them, and they they follow up. And it's it's amazing the the turnover that the difference and the impact that that program has in their lives. It's it's night and day, and that is actual rehabilitation. You know because these everybody involved in the program, they take an interest in these kids' kids' lives in a way that whatever they're going through, and like in my case, that, that anger that I felt, and I just didn't have anyone that I felt I could, I could share it with, like there are people who care and there are people who are there to help them deal with that in a healthy way. And it's dramatic, the impact it has in their lives. It is, it is. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Anybody else? So I am going to Lexington tomorrow, and then I'll be flying out of Cincinnati Saturday, and I'm not going to be able to make the premiere in Lexington, unfortunately. Um, I'm going to be going to my little sister's wedding in London. It's like two hours outside of London, so yeah. Anybody else? I haven't lately, but I love Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, he's... Yeah. He's great. Well, I, I appreciate that, but at the end of the day, all we, can, all we can do is accept things as they are and make the best of it and move forward. Um, I think that's, I agree with, with Malcolm in that way, but it, it's a matter of resources. And a lot of people, if you were to let them out, there aren't programs in place to, to help them actually reintegrate. And that's, that's the big thing um, that, that I'm trying to express with how important it is to share and accept what is in your own story because when we do that, we actually um, form connection and on a societal level, that connection is integration. And we have to find a way to integrate these people who have been locked away and the key's been thrown away.
So yes, I'll speak to that. Um, so there was not supposed to be a taser used. Um, one of the guys who went in, he actually broke his hand a week before the heist, which they don't share that in the film, but he broke his hand. He was in a, a bike wreck. Somebody ran into him in a car and his hand was in a cast. And the day of the heist, he actually cut the cast off and he was supposed to just kind of um, subdue her in a way and kind of talk to her throughout the whole thing and that's kind of how it was idealized. And he, he chose last minute to get a taser. And I didn't know that he was going to, to use a taser. Um, he had talked about it. We were all conflicted about it, but, um, but ultimately he did. What, what actually happened, and they show it in the film, but they don't really highlight it. Um, so the, ta the taser that was used, it was it's called a stun pin. It was a little bit bigger than this. And he attempted to use it and it actually didn't work because he touched her on the shoulder and as you guys could imagine, that's not gonna do much because uh, it doesn't work through material. It has touched skin. So um, yes, the taser was used. Um, the, the Audubon books, they did get those. They took them out of the special collections room. That second librarian that was chasing them she chased them down the, the exit ramp and almost grabbed one of the guys, and that's when they, they dropped the books. Yeah, yeah, really heavy. All right, guys. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate you all coming out and allowing me to share with you. So thanks.